welcome to Atlanta Mix 108. Up next is Author Talk with your host, Emma Roostrack. It's just, it's horrible. 
horrible. So I'm so glad you were able and... to get this Go book. Ahead. And it, like I said, it takes place after four years after I'm looking at for the blue, I cannot pronounce that word, the first book Guru. in your series. Guru. The blue Thank Guru. you. And I'm so glad you got this book published. It's touched is based on a lot of social issues, and your entire series goes with different social interactions and right. things, I believe. Right. So I'm so glad that this book's out there because it really is a great read. Well, good. I'm glad you enjoyed it. I, I do a well, lot of Kindle. It's, it's, it's enjoyable as it can be. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so... I like books. I, I have hundreds of books in my house, so I have my own library. But I'm glad, I love the books that have a social meaning to it. Right. So I'm so glad you did this. So we have The Blue Guru, which is book one. And right. how many books are going to be in your series? As many as I can possibly write. At this point, there are actually four books, um, one of them kind of a prequel. So let's just say there are three books in the current story arc, which was based around the year 2010, which was the year the Saints went to the Super Bowl. And the Saints going to the Super Bowl kind of plays a not so much a backstory or a side story to it, but gives kind of a framework. Um, the fact that the Saints, after so many years of being just an absolute lousy team, managed to get to the Super Bowl in the midst of all of the turmoil the city was going through, really gave a tremendous amount of inspiration to those of us that were there. That if if they can win a Super Bowl, we can fix a house. We can fix a city. Right. Um, I remember watching that. There's an ongoing... Hmm? I remember watching that game on TV and just going, no one deserves going to Super Bowl as much as the Saints this year. No, no. And so many of the people that were the the coach and the quarterback and all these players had come into New Orleans shortly after uh, Katrina and just saw what was going on and dug in and became an integral part of the city. So many NFL teams are parts of their city, but very few of them actually kind of assumed the role of the heart of the city and the team did. very heartwarming when you have a sports team step in and really become the heart of the team. It's just not, well, you're paying me for the playing, basically, and that's all I'm going to do. It's it's inspirational when they go that extra step. Yes, and they really have, and they've continued to. But it's a... I touch base touch base with Louisiana stuff every once in a while as I still have family in the area so I don't Mm -hmm. get as much news now but I touch base when I can right so we have well I've I've always kind of said that you know if you go to New Orleans you're not really in Louisiana (laughs) right that's it yeah because it's just it's so unique We have Blowback, which is the one that covers the Saints in the Super Bowl. 
and then you go into the Blue Guru, and then the third one, which is actually book two, which is Can't Stop the Funk. Right. Now, you said you you have another book after that. Yes, there's also one called um, Ghosts and Shadows, which delves much more. One of the other backstories is the central character's own backstory, he and his uh, chef partner. Uh, we're both military and um, intelligence operatives in the Middle East that came back to New Orleans uh, with stories they can't really tell anybody. Um, and a lot of that comes out in this last book um, where we've actually got someone who has, they were ambushed on their final mission and the overall mission that they were doing in Iraq, someone has decided was just perfect to try and reenact in New Orleans, which puts them and their families and pretty much the entire city at serious risk. So they wind up having literally to like kind of do counterintelligence on an intelligence mission they themselves ran. I thank but it you gets for into, adding that, that yeah. aspect to the series. <laughs> I, yeah. As and a military the, wife, I I thank you for doing that. Yeah, well, and the character all through the series has been kind of fighting a fashion of PTSD, um, which is called hypervigilance, that a lot of people, uh, military veterans, and especially special forces troops that have been in ambushes and been in close quarters combat um, come back suffering from. With your special forces and your intelligence operatives, the problem that they have as opposed to PFC Joe Blow is that when they get PTSD or they have issues, there's really almost no one they can discuss the nature of what happened because everything is so classified, cut off, um, compartmentalized that they're pretty much left on their own to deal with things. And we, we, we deal with quite a bit of that as well. And here's just another thing you can probably use later on, even with the military that's going through this, a lot of the stuff they can't even talk to counselors about is that classified. That's what I mean. Yeah, mm-hmm. that they're just, literally kind of on their own. It, it's kind of like being a, only being able to go to a doctor and say, I hurt, and then that's it. <laughs> you can't yeah, tell you him can't anything else. It's yeah, but the the uh, the other genesis of this last book was that there are other things that have been happening in the country that if you kind of combine everything together, um, it makes for a gripping kind of story. We had the uh, matter of the um, ATF allowing the Mexican drug cartels to buy weapons and take them back to Mexico, which was just a huge scandal. Um, yes. It turned out that at one point the DEA had struck a deal with one of the cartels as well to let their people loose if they were caught in the United States with drugs because they were feeding us information on other cartels. So if we if we spin that to its worst possible outcome mm-hmm. and add in these um, military operatives, then that's kind of where that last book comes from is – what happens when people are trying to, you know, militarize solutions um, in an urban setting, and it's just, it's never going to, the government's not the people you want doing that. No, they don't, they're not. It's, 
I'm glad that you did it this way because it makes for, one, an excellent read that I highly recommend, but you also add in those social things that a lot of people don't understand because they don't think about it. No, but they're out there and they are happening that very little of, well, such as in um, Can't Stop the Funk when there is this whole rather dry discussion about the economics of um, building condominiums in poor neighborhoods um, and basically gentrifying neighborhoods, um, that is ongoing. That's happening in multiple urban settings and destroying cities, destroying communities. Um, But because it's kind of a dry topic and people don't realize how much it actually does affect them directly, people tend to overlook it. Yeah, we put a condominium into a urban setting. You raise the property tax, so the people that have been living there for 20-odd years now have to pay a higher property tax, but the, no one understands, hey, I voted for this condominium to be built. Right. So. Yeah, and it's as we're seeing you know, with the current presidential administration and the stories that are going on about money laundering through real estate, um, we're seeing a lot of the damage that gets done with the high-end um, condominiums as well, uh, that they were talked There are actually condominiums in New York City right now where the average price of a condominium is $5 million, and they have three, they're completely sold out but only have 3% occupancy. The people are just buying them instead of taking out CDs. It's, it's a purely an investment, but it's not an investment in the community where the place is. Because if you actually had someone living in an apartment, then they need restaurants, they need bars, they need grocery stores, they need all kinds of things that an empty apartment doesn't need. And so you wind up killing the service industries in these high-end neighborhoods because there's frankly nobody home. You kill your service. But you've also been displaced. You've then you've displaced these entire communities to build the condominiums in the first place. Right. So it's an endless circle of negative things that's spun around and no one wants to talk about. No, no. And it's, yeah. Go ahead. Yeah, and also it's, it's a somewhat difficult thing to talk about because people's eyes glaze over real early in the discussion because it's it's too much math, it's too little immediate effect on them. Um, and like I say, they don't realize how much it does affect them. That I left New Orleans um, in 2010 and sold a house that it would cost me almost as much again to buy back just, what, eight years later? And there has been, they've done nothing to the house except just lived in it. But the price of houses has gone up so much because of the introduction of Airbnb and all these other um, short term rentals. Short term rentals now account for almost 3% of the housing in New Orleans, which means that's 3% of the housing that's not available for long term rental is not available for single family homes. Mm-hmm. And houses are getting sold now based on their 
income potential as a court, as a business instead of as a home for children. So right. everything has gone up in price, and nobody can afford to live there. You have a, you have a city that's industry is based on minimum wage employees, uh, and it takes forty two thousand dollars a year to be able to live in New Orleans. No one's making $42,000 a year washing dishes in the French Quarter. No. I wish. You have to have two to three jobs to make $43,000, and then when do you have time to live? Right. Working in the service industry at minimum wage up until recently, I understand the struggle struggles a minimum wage because at one time I was right. working three jobs just to put food on the table for my child. Yeah. You cannot live on a minimum wage job. No, you but can't. But when that's all that's offered in your city, what are you to do? Exactly. Well, you leave town or you take two jobs. Right. And how feasible is that really to your health? No, it's not. It's it's not so, healthy. It's not healthy for you. It's not healthy for your children. Yeah, because you end up with latchkey kids. You end up with kids in the street with you know no supervision, and that's mm-hmm. its own set of problems. Right, but your books touch base on all of this combined, just at different angles. So it's right. being talked about, just not in. A new setting, I guess you want to right, say. Right, right. Yeah, the the idea was to take these situations and give them a human element. Is is to make mm-hmm. them into part of the plot that people understand now what happens. Yeah, you know, when you start displacing people, what happens when you don't pay them enough money? What happens? You know, yeah, that actually. You know, unemployed black males that everybody thinks are, you know, drug dealers and horrible people are actually some of the best fathers in the world. But we don't see that side of things. We don't understand that. They still care, but we've intentionally not educated them. We've run all the jobs they could have had out of town, and then it's their fault that they can't can't get a job. Right. Let's send our good-paying jobs overseas, for example leave the minimum wage jobs here, and then see what happens. The economy fails. Yes. And income inequality just keeps growing, and is one of the uh, discussions that happens in the uh, third book when one of the guys is talking about the benefits of gentrification that the Detective tells him that for a man with a French name, you don't understand very much about the French Revolution. Right. Because it's it's how these things happen. It's, it's why they happen. If we go back and look at history and incorporate what we should have what we should have learned during the history, looking back now, a lot of things wouldn't be the way they are. But sadly. Too many people want to glaze over historical facts and yes. not work on actual solutions. No. History is horribly inconvenient. Oh, yes. 
I'm a history nut, so I love my history, and I see it. If you don't change it, it repeats. Yeah. But nobody yes. wants to change it because nobody wants to learn it. Well, no, and they don't. The problem is it's not so much that history repeats itself. The solutions we come up with keep repeating themselves. <laughs> you know, you yeah, can't. That's what's the old thing. Is, insanity. insanity is doing the same thing repeatedly, expecting a different outcome. Yeah, that's but a better solution there. That's, you, know, you can't. You you sense. have to fundamentally Change make a left hand turn somewhere, you know, and go down a different path. Even if it doesn't work, it's a different path, and maybe it's a better solution. But it it won't be the same one which we already know doesn't work. Right. But unfortunately, we don't fix that, and those that want to fix it are not in the position to fix it, or they perceive no. they are not in the position to fix it. Yes. But sometimes yeah. And again, that's that's point. one of the things that right. And that's one of the things that I kind of built into the character of the detective is that he was one of those guys who was, you know, doing what he was ordered, doing what he what he thought was the right thing to do. Um and in the final moments when he's being ambushed and being shot by a 14-year-old angry kid, he realizes that he's kind of got it coming. That yeah, you know, the, the kid is really just defending his home. Is you know got no other option but to take up guns because you know we've bombed away whatever job he might have had. We've created this horrible living condition for him. Um, you know, and so he kind of thinks he's somewhat got it coming when he does get shot at the uh, before the start of the first book and comes back to Louisiana. And he brings that lesson and mindset with him um, that, you know, we need to take care of how we treat one another and how we treat those who were in a lesser position. That, it, you know, he, he very much feels that no part of his job involves, like, creating work for other people. And it gives him this odd sense of justice that he comes to realize that the laws and justice are two different things. And he has a very right. hard time enforcing laws that have no justice. And it, it's how you end up with some of the interesting solutions that he comes up with, you know, to things that, you know, he might be able to get somebody into court on, and he might be able to get a conviction for, but that's not necessarily the justice that needs to happen. So, you know, he makes, you know, rich people suffer financially and, mean people you know, realize there's somebody meaner than they are on the planet, they're going to have to live with that. I was told in school, and this is several years ago, there's always someone better, someone richer, someone more important, more creative, more anything than you are. It's just when you meet that person that you realize it, or if it's shoved in your face. Right. I had a history, or no, an English teacher told me that. Well, he told that to a class, but it's a lecture I remembered. Yeah, and the thing I always learned is there are people that are better at things than you are, but nobody is better than you are. Right. There's only one you. Go 
No, I was just going to say, you know, it's kind of fun. Um, <laughs> yeah, the thing is, you need to basically make a difference, and that's what the characters in the book try very much to do. That sometimes it leads to the problems that the detective is called upon to try and resolve. And sometimes it's just what he calls upon himself in trying to find a solution at the end of the books that brings closure and justice um, as well. Is that, you know, he's just, everyone's got to do, make a difference and be the best person they are. Now, besides this series, are you going to write more series or what do you plan on writing? Because you have a very unique what my style original, doing this. My original thought, um, well, I, I sat down with a couple of agents who were absolutely 100% convinced that a series of books written in this style, in this voice, with this purpose, were the exact thing that the publishing world was not looking for. Um, so I'm going to continue to write them because they're what I'm looking for and what I enjoy right. writing. But the idea was to f- perfect my writing style, perfect my writing voice, and then come up with a more mainstream character that's potentially saleable and try and traditionally publish that. Um, but this will always probably end up having to be self-published, and I have no problem doing so. But I just need to find a market and an audience. And once people read well, the books, they are an audience. It's just drawing, getting the horses to the water. I, I'm hoping this radio show, Atlanta Mix, does give you a broader audience because these are books that are captivating. They have a very unique voice, and they're easy reads. They're not long reads right? No. compared to, say, The Seventh Son by Delaney, but just yes. throwing yes. a book out there. but. They're captivated, and they have a very unique writing style, very unique writing voice. And I hope you have a very long career in writing because you have a wonderful writing voice. Well, thank you. You're welcome. Um, Are you getting ready to do any book fairs, craft fairs, book expos anytime soon? Um, there is a writing festival, kind of a writing workshop in Burlington, Iowa, every November that this year I'm finally going to be able to probably attend. But no, at this point, I really don't. I have a, probably the world's most perfect job for writing is that I'm a okay. training chef for a, for a towboat company so that I spend 28 days um, on a boat cooking for nine people, which takes all of about six hours a day, so I have the rest of the time to write. And then I spend 28 days at home with absolutely nothing to do but write. That so is a perfect been, job for writing. Yes, <laughs> yes, it is. It, it's, you know, plus the fact I love cooking. So, you know, it, it's like I, there's nothing I there's nothing I have to really do except what my wife comes up with that I don't enjoy doing. Yeah, well, I thought you'd always. like the cooking elements as well because you as well, you as well as I both went to culinary school, so I, I knew you'd appreciate Tony. Yes, I did. 
you know, I guess See, I did it, it's, the it's been... and I did the ice carving, I did the restaurant yes. management, and I did the pastries, and a little bit of fine Restra- dining on there. Yeah, yeah. Rest, restaurant management, it turns out, which I did for almost 20 years, is probably the world's worst job to have for writing. Yes, there is. is no time for any such thing. No. Anyone but, that says, no. oh, it's a 40-hour-a-week job has never been a restaurant manager. No, no. I would love to know not, where not, they not get even, 40 hours. Not even hours 40 hours that make sense. Yeah, and even if it is 40 hours, they're not even 40 hours that make sense. You're like, you know, working 11 at night to 7 in the morning or something stupid. But the stories you come away with. Yes. And so you many of the, the most interesting people yes. in the and restaurant so many of the, world. Yeah. And you can come the away restaurant with stories that the two of these. Like, Oh. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And the thing is is that most of the restaurant stories and the characters that get told within the context of the restaurant that the chef and the detective own together are all actual anecdotes. That uh one of the characters there with a slightly changed name was actually my very first boss in New Orleans. It's my way of kind of keeping him alive and keeping him around. But he was just, he was wild and crazy, and it was so much fun. He would just say the most outlandish things. I think we all have met one person, maybe a boss, maybe a co-worker or a customer that's like that. And they're fun to be around, and they never know what they're going to say. No, no. It's, yeah. Unless you've been in the business, you won't fully understand this, but the one thing I miss most in my current job, and let's face it, cooking for nine people is probably the like easiest thing to do in the world, um, particularly like nine blue-collar guys who would just soon have beans and ham and cornbread for three meals a day. Um, but the thing I miss the very most is, is my gay waiters. They were just yes. They were just so lively and so much fun and just so full of life and craziness. And you never know what they're going to say. I don't miss waiters. No, no, no. One of my absolute favorite anecdotes, and it will eventually turn up in one of the books. I haven't quite figured out how to get it there yet, was I had a gay black waiter in one place that I was working in New Orleans years ago during Sugar Bowl, which always brings at least one very rural school and very usually frequently southern into the mix and there was a year that we had Florida and Georgia playing in the Sugar Bowl. And this guy came in with about 15 of his most redneck friends and leans back on this tall, lanky, gay black waiter, allows us how he doesn't want an F word waiting on him. And the guy blinks briefly, stands there without losing composure, and explains to the man that as long as he's in the French Quarter, with that attitude, he'll need to be prepared to starve. And yeah. the other guy blinked, and they got along fine after that for the rest of the meal. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's like, let me put this in terms you're going to understand. Yes. But unfortunately, as captivating as this chat has been, we're out of time for today. Yes. So I want to think, yes, I know this has been a fun interview and fun chat because we yes. have similar backgrounds in some aspects. Yes, we do. So, 
for this. And I thank you for your time. I thank you for your insights. Oh, thank you.